Welcome to the Health Hour. I'm Dr. Jonathan Witt, your host, between 1 and 2 p.m. every Wednesday. And uh, thanks for tuning in or downloading the podcast if you're listening. Uh, today, we're uh, going to skip the news this week. Uh, uh, we'll have Catherine back on soon. Uh, but uh, essentially, the major news of the week, at least for me, uh, has been uh, the death of Robin Williams, uh, who I think uh, for most people uh, was... Uh, someone who really played a large role in their lives in terms of their entertainment and uh, was involved in so many films that meant something to them, whether it was dramatic stuff like uh, Dead Poet Society or whether it was uh, movies from your childhood like Aladdin. So uh, he touched a, a lot of people's lives, certainly a very talented man um, and a very talented actor and comedian. Uh, but obviously, as we have known for some time, I mean, it, it was well known that he, that he struggled uh, with depression and uh, unfortunately uh, ended up taking his own life uh, two days ago. And so to this end, uh, and not to be too depressing, uh, but uh, but absolutely, hopefully to be a bit uplifting for the show, uh, I've uh, got Cassie Chambers in uh, in studio. Uh, Cassie is from the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Did I get that right? You did, well done. Okay, the, the SADAG on Twitter, at the SADAG. Uh, and um, I just uh, thought we could have it in because... Uh, I've noticed in social media and I've uh, noticed just in the general sort of public following this uh, specific tragedy and following tragedies in general and and even in personal experience, Mm -hmm. people seem to think, uh, you know, if you're rich and famous, if you have money, if you seemingly have a nice life, then you can't possibly be depressed. Absolutely. You've you've got someone like Robin Williams whose job was to make other people laugh and to smile and that was his picture. So hearing that he suffered from depression and that he took his own life, people are shocked. Uh, yeah. They think this person that they grew up with and that was part of their homes, how could he do that? And I think it just it puts into a reality check that sometimes the people with the biggest smiles could be the people that are hurting the most on the inside. Yeah. And that depression doesn't discriminate. It can get anyone, anywhere, anyhow. You know, it doesn't discriminate on age, gender, race, what kind of car you drive, what kind of salary yeah. you get. Anyone I, can be affected. I, I think there seems to be a lot of sort of assumptions and misconceptions. Mm. You know, there's the there's that one about uh, if you're poor, then you must be depressed, yes. and if you're rich, you must be happy. Yes. Uh, you know that kind of stuff. If you have lots of material wealth, then uh, of course, how could you not yeah. be happy? Money makes money buys happiness. Eh? Exactly. Or even uh, good health. You know, often we have well, if you're in good health, then what do you have to be depressed about? And you know, it's not the case. I think we're just, again, making assumptions and judging people. Well, you've got everything, so you must just suck it up. You know, yeah. think positively, get over it, you're fine. Sure. And I think it's not the case for so many people. Absolutely. Um, interesting, it uh, brings to mind a funny story I heard recently, which uh, a colleague of mine uh, working in ICU treating a patient. And uh, the patient was relatively sick, but he was on his way to getting better. And uh, he'd been sick for, for, for some period of time, relatively young guy. Um, and uh, they, they positioned the patient in a certain way. Um, and the patient actually started to cry. He had, he had cheek, uh, tears rolling down his cheek. Um, and uh, one of the, the friends or family that was there sort of, he couldn't, he couldn't talk because he had a tube down his throat. Um, so one of the friends or family turned around and said, oh, you know, he's depressed. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't be sad. It'll be better. Whatever. And it turns out that... Uh, that actually, um, when when he could talk and they'd taken the tube out, the way that the nursing staff had positioned him, they'd actually positioned him so that he was lying on one of his testicles. Uh, <laughs> and he was in such pain that he, he, was, he crying. was crying from that. So, 
you know, I think it goes both ways. Uh, you yeah. know, you can be sad. Sadness doesn't necessarily mean depression. Exactly. Uh, I think a lot of people, and this is one of the biggest myths, depression is more than just a bad day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people often say, oh, I'm so depressed. And we all going have bad on. days. Everyone, ha- it's normal to have bad days. It's normal to feel down as well as to feel happy. And in mm-hmm. one day, you can have all of those feelings. And it's normal. If you've lost a loved one or there's extra stress at work, you're going to feel down. It's normal. But if those symptoms get worse and worse every day and they last for longer than two to four weeks, it could be a problem. Often how we explain it to callers who call in and say, well, I've got these symptoms. Do I have depression or should I be concerned about my husband because he has these symptoms? How do I know if it's depression or not? Um, And I think the biggest thing that we use is imagine having your worst day ever. Timesing it by a thousand. And then times it again by a thousand. And that's what it feels like to wake up with depression. It's just every single day is that heavy. It's that difficult. Mm. You can't function normally. You can't make decisions. You can't think clearly. You're agitated. You're empty. All of this happening at the same time. Often when callers call our call center, they say they're so down and yet they don't wish this upon anyone else, even their worst enemy, because it's such a horrible place to be in. And I think if you've suffered from depression, if you've been in those dark moments, you know how bad it can get. Mm. And I think it's it's differentiating that depression is a real illness, just like hypertension, cancer, or diabetes. It's a real medical illness, and yep. you can attest to it. It changes the chemicals in your body, so it mm-hmm. changes the way that you think, feel, behave, and that's why it needs real treatment. Sure. So, And I think that's a good point you've come into, which is essentially that it's not just an element of sadness. There's a real pathological process going on mm. in the brain in terms of, uh, your serotonin, your dopamine, your noradrenaline levels in the brain, uh, which are affected, and 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 it's a, it's a medical problem, which is why we've got uh, all the drugs. Uh, yeah. You know, some some people aren't uh, always um, big fans of of, of drugs, but uh, certainly a lot of them have helped a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they are a mainstay of treating severe depression, certainly. And I think also just touching on that, there's also the stigma of taking medication, um, antidepressants. You know, you don't want to get addicted to them. They're not addictive. Yeah. So that's also debunking that myth. But imagine if you had a I headache. I think we need to separate uh, sleeping tablets yes. from, from antidepressants. And I think people often mix the two as yes. well. Uh, because depression, actually, uh, one of the things you can have is insomnia. Yes. Uh, so you might go end up getting an antidepressant and then also getting a drug to treat the insomnia mm. uh, and then ending up addicted to that drug but certainly yeah. agree with you the antidepressants themselves there's no addictive qualities no and i think it's, it's having to differentiate and inform the patients patients often don't know that they'll get a script of three or four medications because mm. they're treating their sleep or their back pain um their depression and their anxiety and they don't always know which one is causing it yeah. so i think it's important to know that antidepressants are not addictive um, and it's let people know as well that if you've got a headache, you take a tablet. If you've got the flu and the doctor gives you antibiotics, you take them. However, if someone says you have depression and you need to take this tablet, people are so nervous too. There's so much stigma. I don't want to be addicted to it forever. Am I going to have to be on antidepressants for the rest of my life? And No, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just breaking down that stigma and breaking down those myths that people can really understand, oh, okay, this is not as hectic as what it's been made out to be. Yeah. So, well, in terms of in terms of sort of numbers, I, mm. you, I mean, you guys must have some sort of statistics. Mm. Uh, where are we in South Africa? Well, there was a recent study that came out that actually made South Africa very much an unhappy nation, where we have nearly 12% of all scripts being antidepressants, sure. um, which okay. which is a very high amount. Mm-hmm. However, looking at the stat that one in three South Africans will have a mental illness at some time in their lifetime. 
That's a lot of people, one in three. When you mm. have to compare it to HIV, which we see tons of information about, it's one in ten. So mental illness affects a lot more people, and a lot more people are suffering from depression than getting treatment. So when we're looking at the the stat now that just came out that nearly 12% of all scripts are for antidepressants, and everyone's like, wow, that's so much. That actually is low, too low from what the numbers that we're seeing. Yeah. What we see in our call center is about 400 calls per day on an average day. If we do extra press or we do a workshop or a talk. Yeah, it increases. It increases. And it just shows you how many people are out there who feel completely helpless and hopeless. And you mentioned earlier, but I'm assuming those calls are from everyone across all social groups. All ages, all races, genders. Uh, our youngest suicide that we know of in the country has been seven years old. Wow. And we get calls from, you know, 90s to 100 of people who are suffering from depression. Um, we also run the country's only suicide crisis line. So a lot of our calls are a lot more hectic and more intense to deal with mm. where someone has made a serious threat or an attempt to end their life. So we're having to do a lot of crisis intervention yeah. for that. But it, it happens across the board. Uh, depression can affect anyone and what we're seeing different trends at the moment, men don't want to come out and talk about their depression. However, yeah. we know in SA, men are five times more likely to commit suicide than women. So they don't want to talk about their depression. They don't want to get help for their depression until it's too late when they want to end their life. So it's interesting. Okay. So in terms of, I mean, let's say someone's listening to this and they're pretty certain that uh, maybe they don't have depression. They feel okay. Um, but... Uh, they're worried about a friend or a family member. What are the sort of things that they're looking for? First and foremost, what we tell those loved ones, and it happens often, is it's not their responsibility to fix them or to take their depression away. It's just if someone had um, hypertension or they have a kidney problem, you take them to a professional. So to get them professional help. Um, some of the key warning signs that you can look out for symptoms is, as you mentioned, a change in eating or sleeping habits and a drastic change. Not all of a sudden he's eating double helpings for lunch, <laughs> but more as if they've lost their appetite. Men normally lose their appetite when they're suffering from depression. And this, again, just chemically, depression changes the way your taste buds react and actually food tastes different. Mm. So men normally lose their appetite. Women, we tend to comfort eat and overeat. Okay. Um, there's a so it's change. both sides there. Both I mean, you, you, it could be someone eating a lot or someone eating too little. Yeah. You also have the change in sleeping habits. So constantly exhausted, not being able to, to get enough sleep. You're tired all the time. You're sleeping all the time. You just want to sleep. Or you, on the other side of the coin is you can't sleep. You suffer from insomnia. You're up all night. Mm -hmm. You also start to isolate yourselves from family or friends. So you want to be alone. You don't want to be around anyone. You've lost interest in things that you used to enjoy. You feel incredibly helpless and hopeless. And in some cases, especially with men, they're more agitated or irritable. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the feelings of suicide. The biggest concern with leaving depression is that depression is the leading contributing factor to suicide. So it's really important if you pick up these signs of depression in a loved one, you get them help as soon as you can. Okay, so I don't want to get on to health typically. Yes. We, we, <laughs> we're, we're, still, we're still early days. Mm. Um, all right, so... So, I mean, it's 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 to sort of try to pick up to notice these things. Mm. Do people have good insight usually uh, in your experience if they are depressed? Um, is it more a denial side of things? They have the insight, but they deny it? Or is it more of a case of they don't even realize they might be depressed? I think we get both cases. We get someone who's in denial. They're not joining all the dots. They're not linking the headaches with the stomach problems to the not sleeping to feeling agitated 
to just wanting to be at home the whole time. They don't connect all of this as maybe it could be depression. We often have GPs who contact us who see patients who who come to them and say, oh, I've got back problems or stomach problems or I'm very stressed at work and I can't sleep and mm. take the tablets. So the somatizing type of symptoms. Absolutely. Okay. And there's no linking it to, well, maybe let's do a depression questionnaire. Could you have symptoms of depression? What mm. else do you have? So you've got the patient who is in denial and not linking the dots together. And those that are picking up on the signs but are too scared to reach out. Who do I speak to? What if I speak to someone and they think I'm crazy or Mm -hmm. um, less of a person or I'm weak and I don't want other people to know? Then you also get the the group of of patients living with depression who have almost a mild sense of depression that they've learned to function with. So they're just getting by. It takes a lot of energy every single day to get up, to go to work, to put on the, the smile, to get stuff done, but they're functioning. However, eventually it just gets worse, gets worse and, and worse, worse and worse and they can't do that and they can't keep and They're not masquerade. functioning at their best, certainly. No, and they become more exhausted. So in other elements, they're not being able to be as highly functional as they can be. They're not socializing because they're so exhausted on the weekends. Mm. A lot of the patients that we deal with dread weekends, you know, because they've got nothing to do. They're stuck at home. Um, there's no social interaction with having to go to work. So that's when they normally dip. And that's why it's really important with our call centers that we're open every single day of the year to offer that help to callers whenever they need it. It's an interesting point because we often hear those studies about uh, you're most likely to commit suicide on a Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, uh, you know, Christmas time yeah. is, is – is it all true? From our work, no. Uh, we find that we get the same amount of calls throughout the year. Uh, the same amount of hectic calls over the reasons for people calling in are different. So, for example, over Christmas, it's a lot more the elderly. They're a little bit more alone. Substance abuse, because now they've got all their money and they can drink and, and, and drug. And sure. um, Normally, we do find that people get a lot more lonely over public holidays or long weekends because mm. they don't have plans. Normally, over a family event, sort of in like an Easter or a family function type time, they would feel a bit more lonely and depressed. But other than that, we get the same amount of calls throughout the year. There are still as many people with depression, as many suicides. So if there's a specific peak or pattern, we don't we don't, don't see, see that it. from our work, yeah. Sure. All right. So so you're at danger all year long. Just a, a warning out <laughs> Everyone's there. Everyone's at risk, you. yeah, which is even um, scarier. Yeah, it's not just it's not just at Christmas when you don't have anyone to eat with. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's talk about. You know, the social factors. We did mention that there's obviously a pathological element and, mm-hmm. and, and certainly uh, if you your your brain chemicals are all fine, you, you're probably not going to have depression. You might be upset, sad, mm-hmm. um, unhappy, but you'll probably do something about it mm-hmm. um, to kind of correct the situation. And it's it's more of a external locus than, than, than an internal one. Um, but certainly we can't deny that there are some sort of factors which, mm-hmm. which must affect people. In terms of the social side of things, what 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 are we looking at there? So it's normally a combination of these factors that come together to make someone feel really down and depressed. Mm. Um, some of the most common ones that, that that we pick up in the call center from the work is relationships, uh, a breakdown of relationships, whether it be with a boyfriend, husband, wife, or best friend or family member. So any kind of breakdown in relationship, separation, divorce, that's a big trigger for a lot of people. Uh, unemployment, stress at work, high demands. Uh, there's so many different other factors, poverty, and chronic illness, a loss of a loved one, grief. Yeah. The, the, the this normal thing that we would take as 
average as in moving house can be very stressful. That can yeah. sometimes trigger an episode. Also looking at South Africa where we've got an increase in violence and trauma and abuse, mm. all of these factors come together and can definitely contribute to someone's depression. So it's a good point because we've, we, uh, you know, given the, given the sort of relatively violent mm. society we have, I don't want to harp on it too much. I think, mm. you know, a lot is made of it, but, but certainly we have a, a high element of, of post-traumatic stress mm. uh, disorder, um, which is a recognized uh, illness, mental illness as well. Um, but uh, long term, that often manifests itself in mental illness, uh, other types of mental illnesses, mm. uh, like depression. Like anxiety, depression, panic. And what often often happens as well, someone with depression may also feel very high levels of anxiety. They worry constantly. They constantly feel on edge. So those can be what we call comorbid or they can happen at the same time or overlap. Yeah. And that makes it even more difficult. So it's like you've got a double basket of, mm. of, of burden of disease. And I think that also can manifest in other symptoms. PTSD, there was a study done a couple of years ago that over 6 million South Africans could be suffering from symptoms of PTSD but not even know it. Sure. which is very alarming. And I think probably now with the, the current state that we're in, that's probably increased. Mm. So, I mean, those kinds of symptoms are things like insomnia, things like flashbacks, flashbacks to specifically yes. um, sort of… Anxiety, feeling uh, almost on edge, like that fight or flight, like you're about to go somewhere, mm. can't relax, even sometimes shaking, dizzy, nauseous. There's also with your physical body, there's all these changes as well. So it could be increased sweating, uh, your stomach could have all sorts of digestive problems, back spasms, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable as an bowel syndrome. Yeah. Um, all of these can come together, and, and normally it doesn't necessarily happen immediately after a trauma. It could happen a few days, a few weeks, even a few months after the actual trauma. Mm. So people again don't tie it in and link the dots to oh that's what could be happening. Yeah. I think it's also important to note that uh, I mean, as much as we talk about the sort of violent nature of things. Um, I had a patient uh, relatively recently who it was a child. Um, parents were very worried that the child uh, you know, had some sort of uh, respiratory condition uh, and uh, ended up that, uh, you know, it was just uh, very anxious, uh, mm. you know, because they'd been, they'd moved, uh, they'd moved uh, cities, mm. uh, moved schools. Making and, new friends. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and all that sort of stress. And, 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 and I don't want to make it as if that only happens in kids because that happens in adults as well. Uh, be it a, you know, new jobs, new social groups, um, whatever it happens yeah. to be. These, these, these can be traumatic and stressful. And I think we, we undermine what stress can do to us. And we mm. just think, well, just, you know, cope with it and, and just get on with it. But whether, and this is obviously a very controversial topic, but having a child. Um, everyone thinks it's such a joyous, wonderful, blessed occasion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not I'm necessarily. Glad we got into the topic. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I see. I think childbirth's horrific, but uh, um, <laughs> the, 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 what comes out fantastic. Um, yeah. But uh, but the whole thing of being pregnant. Yes, um, it's is, actually a, quite a stressful time. It's a very stressful time, and not everyone has the the movie star pregnancies or the births or. When I don't think anyone has the movie star. Have you seen <laughs> no. that comparison of, 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 of what the movies tell you in, in real life? You know, you glow, yeah. but actually the glow is just a lot of sweat. Um, you know, it's, it's that type of thing. Uh, you know, so. I, it's not glamorous. Um, and it doesn't get any more glamorous after having a child. Mm. Um, you know, everyone assumes again that when you have a baby, you should be so happy and everything is okay. So when you come home and you're just thinking, Oh my God, there's no more nurses. It's just me. 
<laughs> I have to do this <laughs> by it. myself. Yeah. And dad doesn't know what to do. Mom and them, everyone expects you to be happy and smiling and, of course, know exactly what to do with this small little screaming bundle of joy. It's not as it is in the movie. So that in itself can also be very stressful mm. and trigger depression, not only just the, the whole postnatal depression, but that's a stressful life change or experience, mm. changing jobs, moving house, um, having someone move in with you, moving out, all of these diff- going to varsity for the first time by if, yourself, if, changing schools. If you're getting depression, though, and, you know, it's related to the fact that you gave birth or it's related to the stresses of your marriage or, mm. or something that you kind of feel guilty about, you know, mm. you, you feel like you don't have a right to be depressed about yeah. that. You don't have a right to feel down. Mm. Um, you know, is it must be a big contributor to people not coming forward and not sort mm. of dealing with the problem. There's so much shame. They, they, they feel guilty that, well, then I've caused this upon myself. Something must be wrong with me that I can think of this so negatively. And people are going to think less of me. There's so much shame attached to depression. Mm. And it makes it so much more difficult to get help. Now you're supposed to tell people that you have depression or let them support you. So they're more or more likely to keep it a secret and just keep functioning and, and let it get worse and worse until something happens or an episode or uh, a breakdown happens. So it's really difficult to have to reach out to those type of people who are so ashamed of it um, and to encourage them. And I think that's where the support structure comes in place is that not to expect someone to be super happy about everything um, and, to understand, and to ask those key questions. And I think it's to understand that it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be down. It's Why is there the stigma though? I mean, you know, is you know, is there a reality to some of it? Is is it is it a fair fear? You know, uh, is it that firstly people don't like the term mental illness? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that does seem to have a sort of stigma to it, mm-hmm. uh, certainly. And uh, is it also that in some cases, you know, that they do feel like they'll be alienated or mm-hmm. or either at work or by their friends? You know, is there some truth there? Absolutely. And and it does happen. We see this still every single day. So where mental illness was or the the, the issue was 10 or 20 years ago mm. is similar to where HIV was, whereas you wouldn't walk on the same side of the road as someone who had HIV. You wouldn't share utensils or what have you. We still find that with depression. People are scared of it. They think it's contagious. They think that you're crazy, unstable, unpredictable. Uh, we know that so many people, I mean, we hear horrific stories in, in a lot of villages and townships where people who hear voices or who are mentally ill are tied up to trees or locked into homes. And yeah. I think that's the picture when people associate immediately with mental illness is yeah, someone in a hospital, the, the, in a the psychotic, acutely psychotic schizophrenic yeah. patients. And, and thanks to the movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that is the <laughs> picture of what we have of mental illness. And yeah. it's, not necessarily a person standing behind you at the pick and pay queue or someone sitting across from your desk at yeah, work. Someone trying to bash down your door with an axe. Exactly. It's it's someone that you should be wary of. So I think that stigma, that picture of mental illness, and it's having to have enough positive people and ambassadors almost to come forward and say, well, I'm a normal person and I have depression mm-hmm. and it's okay. I think it's having to break down those paradigms and to let people know that it doesn't only happen. Or if you've got depression, you don't have to be in a hospital. You don't have to be hospitalized and sent away and put up in straight jackets. No, that was and 50 certainly years that, ago. that'll never happen actually no. these days. You no, know, it's not absolutely. the way we treat depression at all. And there's so many different treatment models and mm. options that you there's none of that happening. Um, mm. And I think it's important to debunk that and let people know it's okay. It's, it's if you're going to your doctor for the flu. Yeah. Or you're going to take diabetic medication every day. You're going for treatment, going for physio. Mm. People can do that because it's a physical ailment. They can see your arm is sore. 
you have diabetes, you can't eat sugar and X, Y, and Z, but with depression, they can't see. So if they can't see it, it's not real. Mm. It's made up. Someone, you know, thought about it or <laughs> asked for it to happen. Uh, so we deal with a lot with those stigmas on a ba- you know, daily basis. And I think it makes it more difficult for someone else to come forward. And something, as in referring to the Oscar Pistorius trial, during that time, we had a huge increase of calls yeah, from well, the whole ang- general anxiety disorder. Every single sec- second person calling us had GAD. And should I be worried about my <laughs> husband? Uh, should I hide the gun because we've got one in the house? Is he unpredictable? Is he going to kill people? No, people with mental illness are not criminals. They're not unpredictable, they're not unstable, and they're not going to hurt you. Mm. I think in that case, I mean, it's quite important to highlight that because it was used as a defense, or it was it was part of the defense. I'm not a lawyer, so I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not exactly sure in which in which way it was attempted to be used um, legally, at least. But but it, it's I think it's it's quite important because that trial in itself probably put a, a lot of very very bad stigma on anxiety mm. which a colleague of mine often says she doesn't like driving around rosebank because she knows every second driver's on zanor um <laughs> which is a which is a benzodiazepine drug which basically um it makes you makes you a bit sleepy and, and not concentrate very very well um so she doesn't li- like <laughs> she jokes that she's scared to drive around that area um but uh but uh, certainly, you know, that kind of thing, as you say, people yeah. phoning you and going, well, I know someone who's anxious. Should I be hiding the gun? Yeah. Uh, you know, should now, I get them hospitalized? Yeah. Do, do I take the car keys away from yeah. them? Uh, you know, should and, and start treating them as a subhuman almost. Uh, um, and I, those kinds of things do seriously dent the, the work that you guys must be trying to do it was um it was a very interesting week for us when 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 that came out we were incredibly busy and i think it, it sparked a lot of fear mm. in people well i've got jad i don't want to tell anyone because they're going to now associate me with someone who does criminal activity potentially or should i be in court or are they going to look at me differently so now all of a sudden you're putting and normally with jad or generalized anxiety or panic it's a very treatable mental illness. Absolutely. It's very manageable, even in most cases treated. I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I can tell you I, I see it commonly. It's commonly. very common. It's very highly treated. And now it was being pulled in, well, should I go to Vesco, please? I think that my <laughs> husband has you know, panic disorder or anxiety. Does he need to go for an assessment? And would everyone want, want, wanting to go to a psychiatrist or be assessed for a hospital? And I think from all the years, I mean, SADAG is 20 years this year. And it's 20 years of, of thank you very much. It's it's a huge feat for any NGO, but also in the mental health field. And and in 20 years of work, in one week, it literally took us 10 steps back. It just reminded us again of how much misinformation is still there mm. and how much we still have to work and, on And, I mean, in this like case, this. I, I mean, I know they had a psychiatrist, but I don't know if it was the lawyers that sort of put it in the way that they wanted it to sound. Um, but certainly... It shouldn't have come across that way. It's it's with a health, with a mental health professional, and I actually happen to know Professor Forster. So, mm. um, you know, she's a she's a very talented psychiatrist. Uh, she really is very. And excellent. she's got a great reputation. Um, she does. She's she's fantastic. I actually uh, learned under her at medical school. But mm. she, um, you know, it, it's it's so unfortunate with someone like her in the courtroom that that was the perception that was received uh, around anxiety. Yeah, I think if we, we got many calls from psychologists and psychiatrists who were upset and outraged and um, at, at this coming forward and, and coming out like that, I think we had a lot of disputes and it opened conversation again, people talking about it. So it was a great way. Yeah, maybe that's a good thing. 
that was a good thing that we could raise awareness about what it really was and to really put people's fear down and, and just to mm. calm them down and reassure them that it was okay and you can get treatment. And so we did use that as an opportunity to raise awareness. Um, there were a lot of psychologists who were outraged that GAD would even come to in, in that kind of a platform and be used as an assessment for Vescopies mm. when you're dealing with so many more other severe cases who are on a waiting list. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's it, a topic it, for another day. It is a topic for another day, but it's, 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 it's a fair point that they, I mean, there are severe schizophrenics waiting for admission mm-hmm. to, to Vescopies and, 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 uh, you know, essentially someone otherwise well, mm-hmm. um, uh, got pushed up the queue. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, just, just on the anxiety side of things, mm-hmm. I, I think it's important and the depression from our side. And I, I don't know if you would agree with me. It seems like people think, that if you're depressed, then you almost are, they link it to being kind of stupid. And the same mm. with the anxiety side of things. Because of that kind of link in that court case, uh, it's almost like if you're anxious, then you have the reactions of a rabbit. <laughs> and, you know, if something goes bang, then you will jump, shoot, run, whatever yeah. it happens to be. And I, I think people need to need to realize that, be it depression, be it anxiety, be it any mental illness, it doesn't take away the intellectual capacity of the person uh, at all. It just for depression, as an example, they they still have the intellect. They just think that anything they would try to do is pointless yes. and hopeless. Yes, you've got like no motivation. And we we often use this as a way to relate to people. So, for example, if you have diabetes, there's something wrong with your kidneys. It's not working, or you know. So for an organ to be unwell, that's okay, and you get treatment, and that's people can understand that. No. But with depression, we can't quite grasp the concept that your brain, which is also an organ, could not be well. But it doesn't affect you. It doesn't make you dumb, more stupid, um, less of a human. Yes, it doesn't that, change you at all. It, it doesn't change your personality, mm. and it shouldn't change your personality. Or even being on treatment shouldn't change your personality. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of people can't grasp that your brain is also an organ. It can also be ill, mm. and that's where it leads to depression. But it doesn't doesn't change the core of who you are. It just makes it a bit more difficult to function on a daily basis or, you know, make decisions or think a bit more clearly, but it doesn't make you more dumb. It doesn't dumb you down. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's such an important point. All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, if, uh, if anyone is listening, wants to give us a call, wants to ask any questions, obviously you can uh, always give us a shout. 0861-555-189. Uh, obviously you can send a message straight into studio on WeChat. Uh, using the cliffcentral.com uh, ID. And uh, also catch me on Twitter at Jonathan underscore Witt. And I'm sure you can tweet at the SADAG if, uh, if you'd like. And, and we're happy to answer any queries you might have. Just what to say Turn it all around And put a smile right on my face To me you are a blessing And I show appreciate I you change negative to positive And brighten up my day And whenever I get weak And lose my will to carry on I just look at you Cause you give me the reason to be strong If it wasn't for you I just don't know where I would be so tonight I'm gonna celebrate your love for me Cause it's people like you That make the world go right 
shelter in the middle of my storm. And when that the mountains came crumbling down on me, there you were out of nowhere to lift me up and set me free. And whenever I thought that I could not go anymore, girl, you came into my life and you opened up more doors. And now I don't have to look no further when it comes to love. Cause girl, you are gifts and down to me from up above. Okay, and we're back, and apparently I've lost my voice. One second. Right, so uh, we're on uh, with Cassie Chambers. She's the ops director from uh, SADAG, South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Uh, been chatting for about the last half an hour uh, on uh, mainly depression, a little bit of anxiety as well. Uh, obviously, that's what you guys deal with. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you've you've received some SMSs uh what are the what are the types of questions you you're getting? So the types of questions that we're receiving now from from the people that are listening is, what is the difference between men and how they cope with depression and women, and how do I know if, if I should be worried about my boyfriend? Mm-hmm. We get this often, and I think this is where it becomes tricky, especially in South Africa, where men are brought up to be cowboys and they don't talk about their feelings, and cowboys don't cry. So men don't want to talk about their depression, and they don't pick up on their symptoms of depression or their feelings or emotions. However, we do know that men are five times more likely to commit suicide than women. So therefore, they do have depression. They're just not willing to get help. And that's when it becomes too late when they're looking then at suicide. Yeah. So some of the more common symptoms in men in depression 
is irritability. They try to also self-medicate as a coping mechanism, so increased drugs, alcohol, sexual activity, extramarital affairs, risky behavior. Um, those are some of the key elements. Okay, so not, you can't them. all blame your no. affairs on depression, <laughs> depression guys, yeah. but, but, but in some cases it is a factor. Yes, yes it is. We do know that with women then, women are more likely to seek treatment for depression, so they're coming out, talking about it, willing to go and see a doctor or a psychologist. So they are being diagnosed with depression more than men. However, men are more likely to commit suicide. Um, and also because they use more dangerous methods, women often tend to overdose on tablets or poisons. I was actually going to ask hmm. that. I mean, my experience is exactly that. Uh, hmm. Usually it's uh, the, the female suicides are usually overdose on, on some sort of tablets. Yes. Um, and I'm not going to say which ones, but usually useless ones. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, it always was a bit of a joke with uh, my paramedic colleagues who who, who kind of uh, um, quite, um, uh, I suppose it's blunt and it's a bit of sick sense of humour, but, you know, they are dealing with rough stuff a lot yeah. of the time. So, th- so if you're going to do it, do it right type of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, because when you wake them up at three in the morning, when you when you overdosed on a whole bunch of your vitamins, they, they tend to get a little bit upset. Um, but, uh, but, but certainly... Uh, the ladies are, are sort of trying to overdose themselves and, and the guys are taking their guns and, 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 you know, putting it up against their heads yeah. type of stuff. And they're hanging or things that, that, that happen very quickly. Whereas yeah. if you're overdosing or you're taking poison, there's a bigger window period mm. for someone to intervene or for you to get help. Often we get calls from people who've overdosed and they've mixed it with tablets and alcohol and they realize Hang on, I actually don't want to do this. I actually do need help. Come and help me. Yeah. And that's when we're having what to. What about this whole concept of suicide is a call for help? So is it always a call for help? Sometimes they just want to die. They don't actually want help. The people that don't call us, and there is a small percentage mm. that that are so serious about suicide, they don't give up warning signs. They keep it really secret, and they go ahead with their plan. And all of a sudden, it's this gigantic shock to the family. And, yeah, I never no saw it coming. Yeah. What, you know, it's just, it's a huge shock. So there are people who are incredibly serious. And then there's those that have those warning signs, those symptoms, those cry for helps. And we often get this from, especially with parents and teachers with dealing with teenagers is, yeah, but she always threatens suicide or she's attempted suicide so many times. And why we try to put this in perspective is something must be seriously wrong for that person to be using suicide as a way to get attention. Mm. Something must be really wrong. And also, the more they attempt suicide, they will eventually get it right. Someone who's attempted suicide once is at a very high risk of attempting again and getting it right. 75% of people who do commit suicide tell someone first, so there is that opportunity to pick up on those warning signs and to intervene. But with regards to is it an attention-seeking behavior? Yeah, especially amongst the young ladies, you know, the the sort of 16-year-old age group. And threatening suicide and my boyfriend just left me and I'm going to kill myself. And I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. There's no point to life. And I think we have to look quite carefully as to why they're using that as a way to get attention. Why do they feel like they're not going to get attention if they say, I need to get help? They're, mm. they're looking as a cry for help. And mm. we often have this, well, you know, if they want to do it, they've tried so many times, you know, we're just going to leave them. You don't want to be in that predicament like, what if? I should have, could have, would have done something. And that's often what we try to speak to teachers and parents about as well. So any threat of suicide, any mention is to take it as seriously as possible. You don't want to have that moment of what if. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, so rather it's uh, rather overreact to it, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and it's, that's okay. Mm. Uh, then don't react and, and, you know, be, be sorry about um, 
you know, not having having done something when you could have. Mm, exactly. um, let's talk about, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, I think you got some more SMSs, but we'll get mm. there. Uh, let's talk about the drug side. You know, you, you just mentioned it now. It was mentioned a bit earlier. I think it's a, I mean, it's a big component uh, mm. in terms of either that drugs lead you into depression or that depression leads you into drugs. <laughs> they kind of... What came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Um, we, we, we get this often, and I, I think we also have to remind people that alcohol, because we don't tie in, and this is also why we're working with rehabs and they're changing their model of treatment, is what do you deal with first? So you were depressed, so you took drugs and alcohol to help you cope, which made you more depressed and then made you go into rehab. Um, or did you take the drugs and alcohol and then become depressed and so forth? Mm. So it, it's very difficult. To, again, it's very comorbid. It can be a, yeah. a self-medication type Cause, route. Because alcohol does actually change the chemicals in your brain. It does, and it's, it's a depressant. Some, and something we often, I mean, f- forget. I know the people who are fighting for certain drugs to be legalized love using alcohol as an example. Um, but alcohol is a drug mm. uh, at the end of the day. It, it, it is it, it is a mind-altering drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think we all know this. So people do very stupid things um, on alcohol, and the reason is is because it actually has the ability to change your personality, mm. essentially. Um, yeah, and your your reactions, your coordination, mm. your response time, and I think that's acceptable, and people think that's fine, it's socially acceptable, it's in all the adverts, and everyone is comfortable with that, but they don't also realize that it's a, it's a depressant. So after you've had a really heavy night, the next day you're going to feel really down. Mm. Um, and not just because you're hungover, because it actually does make you feel even more down or more depressed. And mm. that could trigger episodes as well. So I think it's really important for people to know that the, the, the difference between the two and how they work together to either make your depression worse, which then also you want that quick fix again. You don't want to feel like that. So a drug or an alcohol takes away those feelings. It yeah. makes you almost escape. It's using as escapism yeah. to feel again, to feel a bit more confident, Often there was a really interesting study done a couple of years ago during Friday peak hour drive times. Everyone goes for a Friday drink after work because it's socially acceptable. You've had a hectic week. Men are more likely to go for a drink after work. And it's not necessarily the social side of it, but more because of the anxiety of having to deal with the traffic and the drive home. <laughs> so this is a way to alleviate and to kind of build the courage or to pass the time. So I hope you people in Santon going to the Baron are listening. <laughs> yeah, and I've just uh, messed up sales for them um, <laughs> or increased sales, who knows. But uh, I think it, people have to understand how they work together and how they, again, it's a like you said, a mind-altering chemical that changes the way that your body responds, how you feel. And I think people have to know that it can make you feel even more depressed or make your depression worse. Yeah, so, so you know, you said it all, but uh, it's just, uh, I, I think it's so under thought of. And, mm. and uh, you know, the, the, the problem is that both of these things, uh, because they go hand in hand, so someone may be on drugs and actually the way it's affecting them is mm. the depression. Mm. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's very important to, to pick up on. Mm. Um, and then long term as well, which is that you may stop the alcohol, you may stop the drugs, but the depression remains. Mm. And it's probably got worse. So once the bottle is empty, your depression is still there. Once the drug and the high is over, your depression is still there. It doesn't go away by taking a quick fix, taking mm. a, a high or a, sh- a shot or a hit. Uh, the depression can get worse and worse and it builds up. And the more you feel it with things like drugs and alcohol, the more it gets bigger and bigger until you need to get serious help. So 
So you mentioned ambassadors before, and you know, I have to be honest. The ambassadors I know of are unfortunately, you know, heroes of, you know, of all of ours. I mean, Robin Williams, you know, who yeah. who died of, uh, we I think we can now say, you know, died as a result of depression. Yes, mm. it was suicide, but essentially, you know, he was mm. obviously very, very severely depressed. Um, you've got people like Heath Ledger, mm. uh, you know, uh, and I know I'm naming famous actors, but they are the people we hear about, mm. uh, who, 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 who. You know, he was a drug addict, but uh, certainly there, there may have been, and, you know, the, the, at least the rumors, I, yes. I don't want to speculate too much, but the rumors are that, you know, he was he was struggling with, mm. with, with depression and, and the, those kinds of problems. And uh, a lot of those sort of people in the showbiz sort of mm. environment, because they often are, are uh, either introverts who are forced to be extroverts, yes. or they are extroverts, and often extroverts uh, may be suffering with those kinds of illnesses, mm. uh, very often bipolar. I mean, if you look at, at at the ambassadors that we've got, for example, the international ambassadors yes. like your Britney Spears and Lindsay Holohan, sometimes having an ambassador for mental illness <laughs> is not the best kind because yeah. you've got so, positive and negative. So I'm talking. Let's talk about the positive um, sort of sort of uh, ambassadors. Who you know who who is come, has come out and said, look, I, I've got depression. Um, it's an illness. Mm. I'm dealing with it. This is the responsible way to go about it. Mm. You know, where where are we sitting with with those kind of people? When we're looking at people who have been incredibly successful and highly functioning, you've got people like Winston Churchill, Albert Einstein, Virginia Woolf, incredibly intelligent people that have lived with a mental illness, with depression. Unfortunately, we do have those celebrities who are still actually in the midst of getting treatment and figuring it out. So that that makes it more difficult because, again, it's not the picture of what depression is, but it's what's painted to us by the by the media. So we have many incredibly intelligent people just looking at South Africa here at, at our uh, group of ambassadors, and we work very closely with them. Is people like Shlubin Boy, Lillian Dubé, Sade, mm. Roxy Burke. We've got such a huge amount of support from people who can understand what it feels like. Either they, they've been there, they're themselves. They've got, they've got family or friends. They've been affected by it. They maybe lost, you know, lost someone. We so often have people who work with us and come with us on our different outreach programs and say, well, I know what that feels like and I've lost someone and this is why it's such a cause close to my heart. And I think everyone who's listening can either relate to feeling those deep feelings of depression have has been there or knows of someone who's been there or has lost someone to suicide or even who've contemplated suicide. And I think we're not open enough to talk about how we are affected or how it has affected our lives. Yeah. I'm just wondering when we're going to get an Angelina Jolie type who comes out and goes, you know, she came out and said, well, my whole family's had breast cancer, so I went and had, you know, mm. a preventative double mastectomy. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it'd be great if we if we had those high-profile type of people, mm. uh, be it South African sort of high-profile people or, or, or international, who came out and said, I suffer with depression, mm. but um, I'm I'm kind of winning yes. uh, I hope I'm and, getting the treatment uh, I'm right, getting yes. the treatment and uh, this is not something to be um, you know you know stigmatized it's not something to to avoid there's something to, to tackle to treat um, to approach let's talk about that so we've got mm. we've got a little bit of time left um, actually I just uh, before we get to the treatment a question that's just come through uh, my six-year-old stepson lives with my husband and I and goes to his mom every second week and he often says he should just kill himself and not necessarily after sort of being shouted at or reprimanded. Mm. You know, he's just kind of saying it. Um, the question is, is this something to worry about in a six-year-old? 
I think if anyone is mentioning this, yes, you, you should be worried. Because at a six-year-old, they may not necessarily have the exact words to say, I want to end my life, or necessarily or know, plan. or a plan. Yeah. However, they still have those feelings, like they don't want to go on. We often have children who come to us and say they want to go to sleep and never wake up. They want to close their eyes and pretend everything is gone forever. And I think we're having to take in context as a six-year-old expressing how upset they are. And I think there's a few things that I would love to find out is, Obviously, it's her stepson, so mm. when was the divorce? How did they cope and adjust? And has he been um, for counselling? Has he been for counselling and what support services are, are in place? And I would definitely suggest that she contact us so we can help her with those tips and tools that she can also offer and things that they can look out for and speak to the relevant people because at six years old, you can pick it up really quickly and help him cope mm. because then you'd also have to worry about how would this behaviour then manifest at school his self-confidence, does he have a low self-esteem, how is he socialising? And, and then it just snowballs because he starts doing badly at school. and So then he and gets bullied. There you go. And, yeah. and maybe then ends up in a in, in a in, in a group of, of sort of uh, delinquents. I don't yeah. want to stereotype, yeah. but I mean, it, potentially that's where it goes. Mm. And you leave it till he's a teenager and perhaps, uh, you know, then mm. he's open to drug uh, sort of behaviour or, or irresponsible mm. behaviours mm. and it's, it, it can be like a gateway. It can just open up yeah. if it's not treated and dealt with correctly. And I think they've got the opportunity now at six years old where it's just been picked up that through counseling and even family counseling, it mm. could be dealt with really quickly. Mm. But if you leave it until he's a teenager, then you're going to need some serious intervention um, that may include everything from psychologist to mm. psychiatrist to family therapist. So I, it's looking at that whole picture. So do something about it. Before I, I think it's, it's important to say, you know, no one – wants to medicate your child no. um, and and uh, you know just be cautious of that because there you know there are um, some uh, doctors I'll, I'll take out my own people here um, but there are some people out there doctors who are prescribing drugs to very very young kids mm. um, and I'm not saying that that's not necessarily required but certainly the first step is never drugs actually. Mm. Especially um, for such an age. I mean, there's so many other interventions old. that you yeah, can try. Uh, you know, yeah. kids are, are very open to play therapy and very open to uh, all types of therapy, actually, and, mm. and uh, um, just changes in their environment um, and their sort routine. of correcting those, correcting the stimuli that, that they have in their lives. So. Mm. And I, and I think it's involving – I mean, it's fantastic that her as a stepmom is picking this up and is reaching out. I think they're already – debunks all those myths about the evil stepmother. Um, and I think it's it, kudos to her that she has picked this up and she wants to do something about it. And there's so many different ways to communicate to a six-year-old. So music therapy, art therapy, play therapy, even getting the support system in place that everyone can help. So mom, dad, stepmom, school, teacher, uh, all of those people can come into play and really help and support them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, good. So uh, we're going to get on to what the the tools are you mentioned mm-hmm. and how they can get hold of you. Um, the last few minutes, I just want to chat about, uh, you know, how people get hold of you guys, um, you know, what, what they should be doing, um, you know, what some of the stuff you just give as general advice mm-hmm. when people mm-hmm. phone you. So firstly, let's let's talk contact details. Yes. So what people can do is SADAG runs a telephonic counseling service. So we can help you over the phone and we also do referrals. So we can refer you to support groups, psychologists, psychiatrists, clinics, any type of resource that you're looking for, we would be able to refer you to mm. in your area. So it's nationwide. 
And they can call us on our toll-free number. It's 0800-708090. We're open every single day of the year. If they don't have enough airtime, they can SMS us and we'll call them back. Are you a 24-hour service? We have an 8 to 8 and we have a 24-hour helpline as well, which is 0800-12-13-14. So, again, really easy numbers to remember. We have all this information also available on our website at www.sadag.org. Again, if you don't have enough airtime, you can SMS us on 31393 and we'll call you back. Or you can go to our Facebook page, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. We have expert chats every second week, so you're able to then go online and ask an expert something. We also are on Twitter where we share some information. So there's so many different ways that you can contact us. And mm-hmm. The most important thing is that to reach out, don't wait, speak up today, contact a counselor at Sadeg and start somewhere. There is help and it's just a phone call away. Absolutely. All right. Great. That's fantastic. Just to give you a bit of a punt uh, as well. <laughs> I mean, if you're, uh, if you're a rich business person listening to this and uh, you're looking for a tax write-off, <laughs> yes. Um, yes, because yes, let's be honest, uh, charity uh, um, does come from the heart, but it also comes from your bank account. So, um, uh, you know, they are an, they are an NGO yes. and, um, you know, if you're looking for a good cause to donate to, uh, I know they, uh, they probably don't come at the top of the list, unfortunately, sometimes, unfortunately, you know, you're not doing surgery the, on children, no. taking away cleft lips. We don't have the great um, pictures of, and again, we're like the redheaded stepchild of, of charities is that mental health is at the bottom of the list and we don't get funding from the, any of the de- departments of health or government. So any money donation that you are able to go to give goes to a really good cause and it could help save someone's life. We just don't do it in a surgical theater. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think uh, just a, just a really, really uh, a good cause. And, and you know, if, if, if anyone's looking to uh, donate some cash, give them a shout. Please um, do. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you're always in need. I know I know it's yeah. not easy. It's not easy running essentially uh, mm. a, not, a non-profit um, you know, and, and, and trying to help people and, and setting up all these systems. Um, Thank you. And having all these experts. Right. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's kind of brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for contacting us and for the opportunity to talk about this, which is sometimes a very heavy topic and people don't want to talk about it. But by doing this, we can educate and maybe help that one person who's listening who can call us. And that's exactly what this was for. So thank you very yeah. much for the opportunity. So once again, guys, toll free 0800 70 80 90. That's the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Any questions, any concerns, hey, if it's not uh, a big deal and they tell you don't worry about that, that's fine, but at least make the call. Uh, anyone you know that's battling, give them the number, give them the details, and uh, we'll be back with the Health Hour next week. I'm not in studio next week. I'll be away for the next two weeks. Uh, Dr. Adam Hirschman will be taking over from me, so uh, expect some... Uh, rowdy and disgusting conversation and i have a gynecologist coming into studio so uh so it should be really 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 literally toilet humor uh but uh enjoy that and i'll be back i'll uh, see you on the 3rd of september thanks very much